For the Love of Reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, read for you by Linda Pack. To sleep, perchance, to dream. Shakespeare has Hamlet muse on this, and he wasn't the first or the last great writer to do so. Among the first was Homer, who was, oh, 2,500 years before Shakespeare, and Ovid, who was a mere 1,500 years before, and later on Dorothy Parker, who was 350 years after Shakespeare. On this episode of For the Love of Reading, you will hear from all of them. But we're going to start with what I feel is the most important work of French fiction of the early 20th century. It runs between three and 4,000 pages, and it begins with a very personal exploration of this suspension of time and space that we call sleep. I am speaking, of course, of course, of Marcel Proust's seven-volume masterwork, A la recherche du temps perdu, which is translated as either In Search of Lost Time or Remembrance of Things Past. It was published in France from 1913 to 1927. I'm going to read to you my edited selection from the very first pages of this novel. Proust calls this opening section the overture. And whether in French or in any of the fine English translation, these pages can be very tricky to follow when you're reading them silently in your head. But I find that stream-of-consciousness literature is easier to grasp by the ear than by the eye. We hear the thoughts of the narrator, who is lying in bed awake after a turbulent night of not-quite-sleep. Proust describes to us, explains to us, in a layered nest of visions, how sleep has awakened in him something extraordinary. In Search of Lost Time, by Marcel Proust, The Overture. I used to go to bed early. Sometimes hardly was my candle out before my eyes would close so quickly that I didn't even have time to say to myself, I'm going to sleep. And half an hour later, the thought that it was time to go to sleep would wake me up. I would want to put away the book, which I believed was still in my hands, and to blow out the candle. I had not stopped while I was sleeping of thinking about what I had just been reading, but these thoughts had taken a peculiar turn. It seemed that I was myself the subject of my book, and this belief would persist for some moments after I was awake. It did not disturb me, but it weighed down my eyes and stopped me from accounting for why my candle was no longer lit. And then those thoughts faded away, like the thoughts of a previous existence, and my connection to my book evaporated, and I was free and could see clearly again, and I was astonished to find around me a darkness, a darkness that seemed to me something without cause, incomprehensible, something truly unknown. I would ask myself 
what time it could be. I could hear the whistling of trains, which, now nearer and now farther off, punctuated the distance like the note of a bird in a forest, revealing to me the deserted countryside through which a traveller would be hurrying towards the nearest station, and the path that he followed, and the farewells exchanged, which still echoed in his ears amid the silence of the night, and the delightful prospect for him of being once again at home. And I would lay my cheeks gently against the comfortable cheeks of my pillow, as plump and cool as the cheeks of childhood. I would strike a match to look at my watch, nearly midnight, and I would fall asleep again. But sometimes, never for more than a brief instant, I would open my eyes to gaze at the kaleidoscope of the darkness, to taste, thanks to a momentary glimmer of consciousness, the sleep into which the furniture, the room, and everything of which I was only a little part was plunged, this unconsciousness to which I would quickly return. The person who is asleep holds in a circle round him the thread of hours the order of years and of worlds. Instinctively, when he awakens, he looks to these and in an instant reads off his own position on the earth's surface and the amount of time that has elapsed during his slumbers. But for me, my sleep was so deep and held my mind so completely that I lost all sense of the place in which I had gone to sleep, and when I awoke at midnight, not knowing where I was, I could not be sure at first who I was. I had only the most rudimentary sense of existence, such as may flicker in the soul of an animal. I was more ignorant than a cave-dweller. But then... The memory, not of the place where I was, but of other places where I had lived, and where I might now possibly be. Memory would come, like rescue from on high, to pull me up out of this abyss of nothingness from which I never could have escaped by myself, and in a second I would fly over centuries of civilization and little by little reconstruct my actual self. For it always happened that when I awoke like this, my mind struggled to find without succeeding where I was, with everything turning round me in the darkness, things and places, years, my body, which was still too heavy with sleep to move, would seek to reconstruct from its position in relation to the walls and furniture the name of the place where I found myself. In, in my ribs and knees, in my shoulders, my body remembered first one and then another. All of the rooms in which I had slept during my life, invisible walls changing place for each imagined room, whirling in the shadows. And although my thoughts hesitated on the threshold of time and shapes, my body recalled each, 
the type of bed, the doors, the daybreak through the windows, what I'd had in mind when I went to sleep and what I found there when I awoke. My stiffened side would, for instance, imagine itself to be lying face to the wall in the big bed with a canopy. And at once I would say to myself, why, I must have gone to sleep after all, and Mamma never came to say good night. And then another memory would arise from a new position. The wall slid away in another direction. I was in my room at Madame Saint-Loup's house in the country. Good heavens, it must be ten o'clock. They will have finished dinner. <laughs> in this confusing whirlwind of memories, which never lasted for more than a few seconds, I had seen first one and then another of the rooms in which I had slept during my life, and in the end I would revisit them all in the long course of my waking dream. Rooms in winter, where on going to bed I would at once bury my head in a nest woven of the corner of my pillow and the top of my blankets, the edge of a shawl and the piece of newspaper, which I would cement together with the infinite patience of birds building their nests. These were rooms where, in freezing weather, I would feel the satisfaction of being safe from the cold outside, like a sea swallow in his underground nest in the warmth of the earth. Or rooms in summer, where I loved to feel myself a part of the warm evening, where the moonlight, pouring through the half-open shutters, would throw down to the foot of my bed its enchanted ladder, where I would fall asleep as in the open air. Or, sometimes, that room where a strange and pitiless mirror with square feet stood, that room in which my mind had passed so many anxious nights while I stretched out in bed, my eyes staring upwards, my ears straining, and my heart beating. Certainly. By now, I was wide awake. I had turned over one last time, and a good angel came to reassure me, made all the surrounding objects stand still, set me down under my bedclothes, in my bedroom, and fixed approximately in their right places, in the uncertain light, my chest of drawers, my writing table, my fireplace, the window overlooking the street, and the doors. I knew now that I was not in any of those other houses, which, if in the ignorance of being awake I had not seen distinctly, at least now made my belief in their reality possible. My memory had been stirred awake and was now set in motion. I did not want to go back to sleep right away. I would spend the greater part of the night remembering my life in earlier days and recalling again all the places and people I had ever known. You've just heard the very beginning of Marcel Proust's masterpiece, In Search of Lost Time. Marcel Proust's narrator could not sleep. 
the best English teacher I ever had, Mrs. Matthews at Newtown High School, once asked us students why Keats wrote poetry. And her answer was, because he could not sleep. Not sleeping is something that I have always been extremely good at, but no one was ever as good at not sleeping than Dorothy Parker. Written in 1936, here is her short story, The Little Hours. Now, what's this? What's the object of all this darkness all over me? They haven't gone and buried me alive while my back was turned, have they? Oh, now do you think they do a thing like that? Oh, now I know what it is. I'm awake. That's it. I've waked up in the middle of the night. Well, isn't that nice? Isn't that simply ideal? Twenty minutes past four sharp, and here's baby wide-eyed as a marigold. Look at this, will ya? At the time when all decent people are just going to bed, I must wake up. Oh, there's no way things can ever come out even under this system. This is as rank as injustice is ever likely to get. This is what brings about hatred and bloodshed. That's what this does. Yes, and you want to know what got me into this mess. Going to bed at ten o'clock, that's what. That spells a ruin. T-E-N space O apostrophe C-L-O-C-K. A ruin. Early to bed, and you'll wish you were dead. Bed before eleven, nuts before seven. Bed before morning, sailors give warning. Ten o'clock, after a quiet evening of reading. Reading! <laughs> There's an institution for you. Why, I'd turn on the light and read right this minute if reading weren't what contributed toward driving me here. I'll show it. God, the bitter misery that reading works in this world. Everybody knows that. Everybody who is everybody. All the best minds have been off reading for years. Look at the swing La Rochefoucauld, that lovable old French cynic, took at it. He said that if nobody had ever learned to read, very few people would be in love. There was a man for you, and that's what he thought of it. Good for you, La Rochefoucauld, you lovable old French cynic. Nice going, boy. I wish I'd never learned to read. I wish I'd never learned to take off my clothes. Then I wouldn't have been caught in this jam at half-past four in the morning. If nobody had ever learned to undress, very few people would be in love. Now, his is better. Ah, oh, well, it's a man's world. La Rochefoucauld, indeed, lying quiet as a mouse and me tossing and turning here. This is no time to be getting all steamed up about La Rochefoucauld. It's only a question of minutes before I'm going to be pretty darn sick of La Rochefoucauld once and for all. La Rochefoucauld this and La Rochefoucauld that. Yes, well, let me tell you that if nobody had ever learned a quote, very few people would be in love with La Rochefoucauld. I'll bet I don't know ten souls who read him without a middleman. People pick up these scholarly little essays that start off with, Was it not that lovable old French cynic, La Rochefoucauld, who said... 
and they go around claiming to know the master backwards. Pack of illiterates. That's all they are. Oh, damn La Rochefoucauld. Well, he's only wasting his time hanging around here. I can't help him. The only other thing I can remember his saying is that there is always something a little pleasing to us in the misfortunes of even our dearest friends. And that cleans me all up with Monsieur La Rochefoucauld. Maintenant, c'est fini, ça. <laughs> dearest friends. Sweet lot of dearest friends I've got. All of them lying about in swinish stupors while I'm practically up and about. All of them stretch sodden through these, the fairest hours of the day, when man should be at his most productive. Produce, 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 for I tell you the night is coming. Carlyle said that. Yeah, and a fine one he was to go shooting off his mouth on production. Oh, Thomas Carlyle, what I know about you. No, 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 that will be enough of that. I'm not going to start fretting about Carlyle at this stage of the game. Let him keep his face out of this if he knows what's good for him. Got enough trouble with that lovable old cynic La Rochefoucauld. Him and the misfortunes of his dearest friends. First thing I've got to do is get out and whip me up a complete new set of dearest friends. <laughs> That's the first thing. Everything else can wait. And will somebody please kindly be so good as to inform me how am I ever going to meet up with any new people when my entire scheme of living is out of joint? When I'm the only living being awake while the rest of the world lies sleeping? I've got to get this thing adjusted. I must try to get back to sleep right now. I've got to conform to the rotten little standards of this sluggard civilization. People needn't feel that they have to change their ruinous habits and come my way. Oh, no, 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 indeed, not at all. I'll go theirs, if that isn't the woman of it for you. Always having to do what somebody else wants, like it or not. Never able to murmur a suggestion of her own. And what suggestion has anyone to murmur as to how I am going to drift lightly back to slumber? I really can't be expected to drop everything and start counting sheep at my age. I hate sheep. Untender it may be in me, but all my life I've hated sheep. It amounts to a phobia the way I hate them. I can tell the minute there's one in the room. They needn't think I'm going to lie here in the dark and count their unpleasant little faces for them. I wouldn't do it if I didn't fall asleep again until the middle of next August. Suppose they never get counted. What's the worst that can happen? If the number of imaginary sheep in this world remains a matter of guesswork, who is the richer or poorer for it? No, sir. I'm not their scorekeeper. Let them count themselves if they're so crazy bad after mathematics. Let them do their own dirty work. Coming around here this time of day, asking me to count them, and not even real sheep at that. Why, well, it's the most preposterous thing I ever heard in my life. But, hmm, there must be something I could count. Well, let's see. You, I already know by heart how many fingers I have. I could count my bills, I suppose. I could count the things I didn't do yesterday that I should have done. I could count the things I should do today that I'm not going to do. 
I'm never going to accomplish anything. That's perfectly clear to me. Never going to be famous. My name will never be writ large on the roster of those who do things. I don't do anything. Not one single thing. I used to bite my nails. I don't even do that anymore. I don't amount to the powder to blow me to hell. I've turned out to be nothing but a bit of flotsam. Flotsam and leave em. That's me from now on. Oh, it's all terrible. Well, this way lies galloping melancholia. Maybe it's because this is the zero hour. This is the time the swooning soul hangs pendant and vertiginous between one new day and the old, nor dares confront one nor summon back the other. This is the time when all things known and hidden are ironed to wait the spirit. This is the dreadful hour of the victorious dark, for it is always the... Was it not that lovable old cynic La Rochefoucauld who said it is always darkest before the deluge? There. <laughs> now you see, don't you? Yeah, here we are again, practically back where we started. La Rochefoucauld, we are here. Ah, oh, come on, son. How about your going your way and letting me go mine? I got my work cut out for me right here. I've got all this sleeping to do. Think how I'm going to look by daylight if this keeps up. I'll be a seamy sight for all those rested, clear-eyed, fresh-faced, dearest friends of mine. The rats. My dear, whatever have you been doing? I thought you were so good lately. Oh, I was helling around with La Rochefoucauld till all hours. We couldn't stop laughing about your misfortunes. No, 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 this is getting too thick, really. It isn't right to have this happen to a person just because she went to bed at ten o'clock once in her life. Honest, I won't ever do it again. I'll go straight after this. I'll never go to bed again if I can only sleep now. If I can tear my mind away from a certain French cynic, circa 1650, and slip into lovely oblivion, 1650, I better look as if I'd been awake since then. How do people go to sleep? I'm afraid I've lost the knack. I might try busting myself smartly over the temple with the nightlight. I might repeat to myself, slowly and soothingly, a list of quotations beautiful from minds profound, if I can remember any of the damn things. I might do it. And it ought to effectually bar that visiting foreigner that's been hanging around here since 20 minutes past four. Yes, mm -hmm. that's what I'll do. Now, let's see. Where shall we start? Hmm. Why, uh, let's see. Oh, yes, I know one. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as night the day thou canst not then be false to any man. Now they're off. <laughs> Once they get started, they ought to come like hotcakes. Let's see. Ah, what avail the sceptred race and what the form divine, when every virtue, every grace was Aylmer, all were thine. Let's see. They also serve who only stand and wait. If winter comes, can spring be far behind. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Mrs. Porter and her daughter wash their feet in soda water. And he shall hear the stroke of eight and not the stroke of nine. 
They are not long, the weeping and the laughter, love and desire and hate, I think, will have no portion in us after we pass the gate. But none, I think, do there embrace. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. I think I will not hang myself today. Hey, Tank, I go home now. Oh, let's see, let's see. Uh, solitude is the safeguard of mediocrity and the stern companion of genius. Mm, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Something is emotion remembered in tranquility. A cynic is one who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. That lovable old cynic is one who, oops, get to watch myself. Oh, let's see. Circumstantial evidence is a trout in the milk. Any stigma will do to beat a dogma. If you would learn what God thinks about money, you have only to look at those to whom he has given it. If nobody had ever learned to read, very few people... All right, that fixes it. I'll throw in the towel right now. I know when I'm licked. There'll be no more of this nonsense. I'm going to turn on the light and read my head off till the next 10 o'clock if I feel like it. <laughs> and what does La Rochefoucauld want to make of that? Oh, he will, eh? Yes, he will. He and who else? <laughs> La Rochefoucauld and what? Very few people. You've just heard the short story, The Little Hours by Dorothy Parker. Dorothy Parker was the leading light of a hard-drinking set of young intellectuals, the Algonquin Round Table. This was a notorious gathering of wits who lunched at the Algonquin Hotel in New York City in the 1920s and 30s, and it included, among others, James Thurber and Harpo Marx. They were nicknamed the Vicious Circle. Dorothy Parker was particularly and immensely quotable. Among the many, many famous anecdotes about her, this is my current favorite. Dorothy Parker and the English novelist W. Somerset Maugham were seated next to each other at a Hollywood dinner party. He asked her to write a poem for him. The waiter found them a scrap of paper and a blunt pencil, and she wrote... Higgledy-piggledy, my white hen, she legs eggs for gentlemen. You cannot persuade her, with gun or lariat, to come across for the proletariat. <laughs> Dorothy Parker's wonderfully funny, very carefully crafted prose and reviews and poetry helped to shape the character of the young New Yorker magazine, where she published from 1926 through 1955. Dorothy Parker died in 1967. A firm believer in civil rights, she bequeathed her literary estate to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. After his assassination in the following year, the royalties from her works were turned over to the NAACP. I wish to thank the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People for authorizing this use of Dorothy Parker's work. It is an honor and a privilege. As I mentioned, I've never been very good at sleeping, but I am a champion dreamer. And I studied on that because I have so many dreams when I'm finally asleep. 
In ancient Greek myth, there are two gates to the land of sleep from which dreams issue. One is an enormous and beautiful set of gates carved from pure ivory. Dreams throw, flow through these lovely gates of ivory constantly, but these dreams are idle and false. The other gate is very small and made of rather unspectacular horn. The gate of horn rarely opens, and then only to release a dream of true prophecy. These gates are first mentioned by Homer about 900 B.C. in the Odyssey, where Penelope describes a dream she has had and then wonders if that dream can be relied upon. She says, My friend, dreams are things hard to interpret, hopeless to puzzle out, and not all of them are fulfilled. There are two gates through which shadowy dreams issue. One pair of gates is made of horn and one of ivory. The dreams that come from the carved ivory delude and deceive, and those that pass through the polished horn come true. And another authoritative ancient writer, Virgil, about 800 years after that, tells us this in the Aeneid. Two gates the silent house of sleep adorn, of polished ivory and of transparent horn. True visions through transparent horn arise. Through polished ivory pass deluding lies. But, you know, even if our dreams come through the ivory gate and are not true, might they not anyway give delight and perhaps even comfort? In Shakespeare's The Tempest, the sad monster Caliban finds happy solace in dreams he knows are not real, and here he explains it to some visitors to the island. Be not afeard. The isle is full of noises and sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that, if I then had waked after long sleep, will make me sleep again. And then, in dreaming, the clouds, methought, would open and show riches ready to drop upon me, that when I waked, I cried to dream again. I suspect Caliban's dream came through the gates of ivory. Here is the myth that introduces us to one of the mightiest gods of dreams, Morpheus. It is told by the delightful Roman poet Ovid in his Metamorphoses. It was written in the first century A.D. It is a tragic love story, but with a beautiful conclusion. This is the tale of Ceyx and Alcyone. Ceyx, the son of the god of light, was troubled by heart's anxiety and was preparing to go and consult the sacred oracle of Apollo, who reveals human affairs. He discussed it with his beloved and faithful wife Alcyone, the daughter of the wind. 
She felt a chill immediately deep in her marrow, and her cheeks were drenched in flowing tears. Three times she tried to speak, and three times her face was wet with weeping and sobs. She said, "'What has turned your mind to this, dear one? Where is that care for me that used to come first? Can you now leave Alcyone behind without a thought? The waters scare me.' and the sombre face of the deep, and lately I saw wrecked timbers on the shore, and I've often read the names on empty tombs. Aeolus, god of the winds, is my father. When once the winds are released and hold sway over the waters, nothing can oppose them. They vex the clouds in the sky and create red lightning flashes from their fierce collisions. The more I know of them, and I do know them, often seeing them as a child in my father's house, the more I consider them to be feared. But if no prayers can alter your purpose, dear one, husband, if you are so fixed on going, take me with you. Then we shall be storm-tossed together, and at least I shall know what I fear. Together we shall bear whatever comes. Together we shall be borne over the waters. Her star-born husband was moved by her words and tears. He loved her as much as she loved him. But he would not relinquish his planned sea journey, nor put Alcyone in peril. I swear to you by my father's light to return to you before the moon has twice completed her circle. When her hopes had been revived by these promises of return, Alcyone said a last farewell, raised her wet eyes, and leaning forward could see her husband standing on the curved afterdeck of his ship, waving his hand, and she returned the signal. She followed the fleeting ship with her gaze while she could. They had left the harbor, and the breeze was stirring at the rigging. At nightfall, the sea began to whiten with swelling waves, and the east wind to blow with greater strength. Soon the storm increased its severity, and now the roaring winds attacked from every quarter. There is uproar, men shouting, the rigging straining, the sound of the breaking from a weight of sea, and the crash of thunder. The waves rise up and seem to form the sky. Their breeze and their spray touches the towering clouds. Now the water is tainted yellow, and sand is churned up from the depths while the waves break white with hissing foam as fierce lions on the attack drive themselves onto the armored chests and extended spears of the hunters so the waves drive forward in the rising winds reaching the height of the ship and higher above it flashes of lightning cleave it and give light the rain is illuminated by lightning flares all is confusion skill fails and courage ebbs Alcyone is on Ceyx's lips. How he would like to see his native shores again and turn his last gaze toward his home, but he knows not where it is. The sea whirls in such vortices, and the covering shadows of pitch-black clouds hide the sky. It mirrors the aspect of night. He thinks of her and speaks to her and prays that the waves might carry his body to her sight, that he might be entombed by her dear hands. 
As often as the waves allow him to open his mouth, he speaks the name of Alcyone until the waves themselves murmur it. See, a black arc of water breaks over the heart of the sea, and the bursting wave buries his drowning head. Meanwhile, Alcyone counts the nights, unaware of this great misfortune. She worships at Juno's temple, praying that her husband is safe. The queen of the gods, who gives special care to wives, could no longer bear these appeals of safety for one who was dead. She called upon Iris, goddess of the rainbow and messenger of the gods, and said, Iris, most faithful carrier of my words, go quickly to the heavy halls of Somnus, the god of sleep, and order him to send to Alcyone a dream figure in the shape of her dead husband to tell her his true fate. Iris donned her thousand-colored robe and spread to the palace and sanctuary of drowsy sleep a deeply cut cave, a hollow mountain. Clouds mixed with fog and shadows of the half-light exhaled from the ground. There still silence dwells, and out of the stony depths flows Lethe, the river of forgetfulness, whose waves gliding over the loose pebbles with their murmur induce drowsiness. In front of the cave mouth a wealth of poppies bloom, and innumerable herbs from whose juices night gathers sleep and scatters it over the darkened earth. In the cave's center there is a tall bed made of ebony, downy, black-hued, spread with a dark gray sheet, where the god Somnus, known to some as Hypnos, himself lies, his limbs relaxed in slumber. Around him, here and there, lie his many sons, the bringers of dreams. Iris entered, brushing aside the dreams in her way, the dark, sacred place glowing with the light of her rainbow robes. The god Somnus, hardly able to lift his eyes heavy with sleep, falling back, striking his nodding chin on his chest at last, shook himself free from his own influence, and resting on an elbow, asked her why she had come. <laughs> and she replied, Dear, good sleep, the gentlest of the gods, descendant of the goddess of night, sleep, the spirit's peace, who care flies from who soothes the body wearied with toil and readies it for fresh labors. Awake and listen. Order a likeness, the image of King Ceyx, that mirrors his true form and send it to Alcyone and show her, in a dream, the shipwreck. This our mother and queen Juno commands. And Iris flew back across her rainbow bridge to Olympus. From among his thousand sons, his father roused Morpheus, the master craftsman who imitates human beings. No one else is as clever at expressing the movement, the features, and the sound of speech of a mortal. 
and as he is bidden, Morpheus flies through the shadows on noiseless wings and takes the shape of Ceyx, pallid like the dead and naked, and stands before his unfortunate wife's bed. He appears with a sodden beard and sea-water dripping from his matted hair. Then he bends over her pillow with tears streaming down his face and says, My poor wife, do you know your Ceyx, or has my face altered in death? Look at me. You will recognize me, Alcyone. I am dead. Do not hold out false hopes of my return. I am drowned. I, myself, as you see me before you, tell you my fate. Get up. Shed tears. Wear mourning. Do not let me go down unwept. Morpheus spoke these words, with the voice, the gestures, and the tears of her husband. Alcyone groaned, tearfully stirring her arms in sleep, and seeking his body, grasped only air. She cried out, "'Wait for me! Why do you vanish? We will go together!' Roused by her own voice and her husband's image, she started up out of sleep. First she gazed round to see if he was still there, the one she had just seen. But Morpheus had departed, as dreams do. Not finding him anywhere, she shouted, "'My Ceyx! He is wrecked! I saw him! I knew him!' It was a shadow, yet it was my husband's true shadow. But I shall not leave you, my poor husband. I shall come as your companion. Morning had broken. She went out of the house toward the shore, sadly seeking the place where she had watched him depart. She stretched out her trembling hands, and she leapt into the sea. But the gods took pity on her. And instead of plunging into the waters, Alcyone flew. She had been transformed into a bird, beating the soft air on new-found wings. A sorrowing bird, she skimmed the surface of the waves, and there, in the surf, spied the body of her beloved. She reached out to embrace him, and Ceyx, too, was transformed into a bird— their love unchanged for all time. These long-necked diving birds skimming over the ocean, the halcyon birds, are also known as kingfishers, for they are the descendants of kings. The seven days before and after the shortest day of the year are now known as halcyon days, so named after Alcyone. These two weeks of peaceful weather at the winter solstice, when the gods make sure that the sea lies still and no breath of wind disturbs them, the halcyon birds build their floating nests and lay and hatch their eggs. Kingfishers mate for life, and both male and female tend the nest and care for the young. So smiles the surface of the treacherous main, as o'er its waves the peaceful halcyons play, and the birds of calm sit brooding on the charmed wave. I love that story. 
Ovid's tale of the eternal lover, Cix and Alcyone, and I'd never known it before I got curious about the phrase, lying in the arms of Morpheus. And for that, I thank my friend, Christy Olson Day of the Gallery Bookshop, who mentioned to me that phrase. And I've also since learned that Alcyone is the name of a star in the constellation Taurus. Research is fun. Stay curious, my friends. Shakespeare, who welcomed us into our little exploration of the world of sleep, will also give us the last word on dreams, and this also is from The Tempest. Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, and all which it inherit, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant, faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. And that is all for this edition of For the Love of Reading, To Sleep, Perchance, To Dream. The material read on For the Love of Reading was selected and reviewed with commentary by Linda Pack. The program was engineered by Alicia Bales. This program is archived and available for online listening at kzyx.org. There you will also find a bibliography of the readings heard on this edition of For the Love of Reading. KZYX For the Love of Reading is a production of listener-supported community radio, KZYX and Z, public broadcasting for Mendocino County, California. On our website, kzyx.org, you will find links to all our podcasts, including KZYX Mendocino County Remembered, oral histories read for you by Linda Pack. You can also stream live programming and show your support by clicking the red Donate button. This is Linda Pack. Thanks for listening.